Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, Shiloh, we are talking about sections 30 through 36. This is uh, this is quite a chunk of meat to bite off and chew, <laughs> if, if, <laughs> if meat's yeah. your thing, right? Um, There's a lot so of it. It, yeah, I mean, we did just single section last time and, uh, now we're into 30 through 36. Uh, we, we were going to make a note about this because the last podcast, we promised an Easter podcast and now we are breaking that promise. We're not yeah. going to do an Easter podcast. Yeah. Um, and by the time you're listening so, to this, you'll have realized that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what we decided was that if people really wanted something to listen to, they should listen to General Conference, right? <laughs> that's right. And I figured most people will be listening to General Conference anyway, because there's just so much that's there. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's our justification there. And we will take all of your complaints about not doing an Easter episode, and we will throw them in the trash. <laughs> 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 but uh, anyway, 30 through 36. We will ponder over them meaningfully <laughs> and respond with love and kindness and affection. <laughs> yes, something like that. <laughs> if I get So that. 30 through 36, we, we have been discussing these chapters before we started recording here, and we probably should have started recording earlier. Here we have all of these sections basically are a – a series of revelations given to a lot of these early, uh, what you might call high caliber members of the church. A lot of these really strong personalities that have joined the church right at the beginning. You know, these are all given in 1830, you know, within a year uh, or less, much less, you know, all within the year 1830, within a really a few month span of all these people that are that are joining the church. And we've got, man, the names here. We've got David Whitmer, Peter Whitmer, John Whitmer, Thomas B. Marsh, Zeba Peterson, Parley P. Pratt, Ezra Thayer, Northrop Sweet, Orson Pratt, Sidney Rigdon, Edward Partridge. I mean, these are all really significant names in the first 10, 15 plus years of the history of the church. So these are people that are coming in. They're very excited about what's what's going on. They want to know from, from Joseph Smith what they're supposed to do. Some of this is probably like, hey, there's a real prophet. What revelation can I get out of him for myself? This is a new experience for them, right? To To get this revelation that's like, hey, this is the voice of the Lord speaking to me. So we have in these sections a ton of language that's very new testament like but it's organized in a in a very you know odd way some of these sections they jump around on different analogies um, there's lots of references to parables of Christ and different book of mormon things and so it's it's kind of this hodgepodge of all of this religious uh, language that is 
sort of being molded together and then meshed with a little bit of this new restoration type of language, I guess you could say, or how they're how they're going to start speaking, you know, building this culture of of speaking religiously within the church. And so a lot of that talk comes through in these sections here. And then there's some some really interesting questions about what does the Lord really mean when he says some of the things in here? And if he doesn't mean what the people who received the revelation thought he meant, then why did he say it in the way that they were going to think that he meant it? Right. Um, right. And, and that's actually a really interesting question. And uh, when we were discussing it before, you know, you kind of brought up, brought that up, Shiloh. And I don't know that I'd ever thought about it before, but I kind of think while I'm talking, which often gets me into trouble because I, I say stuff that's ridiculous and then I realize it's ridiculous. And so then I circle back around. <laughs> but that's how I think. That's like how my brain works, right? I have to say ridiculous stuff to realize it's ridiculous. And then I'm like, wait, that's ridiculous. What I really mean is this. <laughs> hear myself talk. But there's some some really fascinating things that are presented in these sections that make us ask some questions, some tough questions about what the nature of revelation is, how we're supposed to approach it, and why that matters. What does that mean for the restoration of the gospel and for the significance of these sections? And so um, as we as we get into this, I think that that is going to be sort of a central theme of of our discussion about revelation and 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 why that matters for the restoration of the church. Yeah, you know, when we bring that up, that's you know, we're going to talk more about that as we get down to these couple other uh sections, but we find this in DNC a lot where we're going to find a lot of things that the Lord has talked about and commands them to do that never ends up coming to fruition. Number 1 is we're talking about a lot of these men who in these sections are called to missions to the Lamanites. And so these men get called and they start heading out from where they're at in New York and they end up going through Kirtland on the way out to Missouri because they're going to go talk to the Lamanites. They got the Book of Mormon in hand now and this is this is the record of their people, right? And and that, that's the idea they're laboring under. And so the Lord tells them to go to the Lamanites and so they're taking this Book of Mormon thing with them. Along the way, when they stop in Kirtland, that's when they meet in with with uh, Sidney Rigdon, and Sidney Rigdon ends up seeing uh, these uh, these these men. I, I believe he's he's uh, also acquainted with Parley B. Pratt. I believe it was from from years before. And so Sidney Rigdon and Edward Partridge end up going back from Kirtland all the way over to New York to visit this new prophet who has this new this new Bible, as it were, in the Book of Mormon. But in the going out from uh, these missionaries realize that they're not supposed to be staying in Kirtland, even even though when they baptize everyone in Kirtland, if Sidney Rigdon's uh, branch, right, when they start doing Just that. doubles the size of the church overnight, basically. Literally doubles the size of the church, right? But the thing is, is now they're a member of this new church about with revelation and prophets and, and the ministering of angels, and they have no idea what else to believe. It, I mean, like, there's no internet. There's no... <laughs> There's yeah. no place that they can go look this up. There's no correlated, you know, correlation department. There's there's nothing going on where they can say, you know, this is what we say we believe. And so all they did is they had these few missionaries coming through town who preached this new gospel to them. It sounded good, so they got baptized. So now they're members of this brand new church. They don't even know what it is. So Sydney Sydney Rigdon and Edward Partridge go all the way back to uh, New York to kind of figure out what this whole new thing is. And in the meantime, the other missionaries head down to Missouri to finish out what they're doing down there with uh, with the Lamanites. But the thing is, is that whole project among the Lamanites never comes to fruition. 
I mean, they, they go in there, they talk with the Lamanites, you know, there's a few things that happen. They, they do their due diligence, but because of things the United States does at the time, because of the Indian and United States conflicts, because of Missouri politics, because of uh, and any one of a number of different things, it didn't work out. And so a lot of the questions that, uh, you know, we ask ourselves at this point, now that the church ends up growing, we have to ask ourselves, why is the Lord commanding things that he knows will never come to fruition? And, you know, in part we can ask, well, maybe it's just that that was the journey that he knew that person needed to take to grow in the way that it needed to be so that the church can grow in another way. And that's fine. But if that's the truth, then what does that say about revelation in our own life? And about us getting answers. And do we, do we truly have to then be humble that if the Lord is calling us to go preach to the missionary or preach to the Lamanites, when the Lord knows we're not actually going to have success with the Lamanites, but the point wasn't the Lamanites, that while we're traveling out there with a, with each step of faith, realize, because we don't, we don't see the, the end result, right? But but if it is that the Lord calls us out on a quest in order to just get us to the place where he needs us, why didn't he just say it to begin with? Are there things that he reveals to us to get us to walk down? And I'm reminded of uh, Elder Holland. He has this uh, this video, and it's a video my wife and I have, you know, we lived by for, I know, a decade. <laughs> <laughs> we love this video. But it's where Elder Holland is out in the, in the Utah desert with his son. And he is showing his son down in southern Utah, out in the wilderness where he used to go. And at what point at the end of the day, they end up trying to come back into civilization, as it were. And when it came, when it happened, they uh, they came in a fork in a road that they didn't recognize that, uh, that that they had passed coming into the wilderness, and they couldn't discern which way was the right way. That you know, whether tire tracks or anything else, they couldn't figure out which way was the right way. And it was getting dark, and they needed to make a right decision. So they prayed, and they they both felt very strongly to go right, and so they went right with full confidence. And he says it wasn't four hundred yards when the road completely ended, and it was completely wrong. And he said, uh, clearly the wrong path. So they turned around, they went down the other way, clearly the right path, and ended up getting down and out and uh, along their way. And Elder Holland's son turned to him and asked him, he says, why do we both feel prompted to go down the wrong way, clearly the wrong path? Elder Holland's response in thinking about it was, and and this resonates with me because this happens with me a lot, and this is how the Lord's worked with me a lot in my personal life is that he calls us down the 400 yards knowing that it's a dead end so that when we turn around, we can act with confidence going down the other path. That sometimes it's our in our own interest and the Lord recognizes that we need to go kind of try things out for ourselves, realizing that we're gaining experience in the process to then kind of turn around and redivert our attention. So why did the Lord need them to go under the narrative to the Lamanites? Why did he need to do that? I don't know. That's above and beyond my pay grade. But what we do know is that the Lord commanded them to do something. They went out to do it. And through a whole other set of circumstances, it didn't really work out. But so that's a that's a great discussion to have. And I know we'll have that through this. But going into section 30, you know, this is given to David Whitmer, Peter Whitmer, and John Whitmer. And they each have about four or five verses that are given to them. And this whole thing is about missionary work. So at this point, we are talking, this is when people are being called either on their mission. Oliver Cowdery has been called to go out to Missouri. Peter Whitmer is then commanded to go with Oliver. David Whitmer is not commanded to go, and neither is John. But Peter is commanded to go out with Oliver and to be a support for Oliver. 
And I think that's really interesting because in verse five and six, it says, behold, I say unto you, this is in uh, section 30, behold, I say unto you, Peter, that you shall take your journey with your brother, Oliver, for the time has come that is expedient in me that you shall open your mouth to declare my gospel. Therefore, fear not, give heed unto the words and advice of your brother, which he shall give to you and be you afflicted in all his afflictions, ever lifting up your heart unto me in prayer and faith for his and your deliverance. And I have given unto him power to build my church among the Lamanites. Hmm. Fascinating verses. Number one, the Lord is telling him to mourn with Oliver when it's time to mourn, to to be there, to be afflicted when it's to be afflicted, to mourn when it's being there to mourn. This kind of lived experience, this kind of lived religious experience, this kind of living with each other, this is the bedrock of Zion kind of living. When you become conscious of your interactions with your fellow man and you realize that you become conscious in bearing afflictions with afflictions and mourning with those that mourn, we are entering into new relationships with other human beings that the world does not teach us to do. Because let's be honest, let's look at the politics of the United States over the last four to eight years. Let's look at it over the last 12 years. You know what? Let's look at American politics since the last 30 or 40 years. There is nothing in American politics, for instance, that teaches anyone to be meek, humble, and to be able to mourn with those that mourn. It, it doesn't exist. This is not our culture. We, we don't foster this. We don't, we don't teach it. We don't really culturally practice it as a, as a nation. And we don't expect others to practice it. We reserve this for our religious selves. And even as our religious selves, we consider this the, the things that we over, overcome the, the regular way of living, right? Because mostly as a people, whether or not American or any other nationality, the foundational thought of most nationalism is justice. Mm-hmm. That the primary look for, the primary thing that we look for is justice. Mm-hmm. And mercy is the second afterthought. Mercy is the thing that we're like, uh, Justice first, but could I be merciful in this moment? When, what if we had a life where we looked at mercy first and then justice was like an afterthought? Like, does this really need justice? Mercy all the time, but does this really need justice? Yeah, I mean, I'm not bashing the Constitution or anything, but the preamble says nothing about mercy, right? <laughs> right. It's all about establishing justice. Mm-hmm. And that's what that plan of political philosophy has always been. So when you start to trek out and the Lord is now building his people of his church were building the church and he's calling them in their moments of suffering and he knows they're going to come into affliction but to learn how to be afflicted with the other this is some powerful stuff and i love here what he says about building up the church among the lamanites that never happens not at least not here at least not now at least not in this whole endeavor they're not in the way they imagined yeah (laughs) or in the way that we we would imagine imagine (laughs) for them either right (laughs) Right. You know, you were talking about that, that experience of Elder Holland and, you know, just, just made me realize you, we sometimes assume a particular destination or outcome as part of maybe a, a prompting or a direction we get from the Lord. We think, oh, that is so that I can arrive at a particular destination or outcome. But the the point of this life isn't arriving at a particular destination or outcome per se. It's about giving us an experience on our journey. And so that experience itself is is what the Lord is leading us in, not just get through it so you can get to this particular end and so go that direction, right? Yeah. Go that direction so you can experience what is to be experienced when you go that direction, right? (laughs) So go to the Lamanites and preach to them so you can experience what needs to be experienced when you go to the Lamanites and preach to them, or at least these people that you 
call Lamanites. <laughs> right. Because that's, you know, he's using the language that they that they assumed was who these people were. You know, it's not clear objectively if, if that's the case or not, but that that was the narrative they had in their mind. So again, that's the language the Lord is using to communicate with them in this religious context. Yeah, and I think that's that is really important for us to understand as we go through the Doctrine and Covenants is that the Lord talks to the people in their context. And a lot of the times I think we take for celestial truth what the Lord means for certain people in their particular need. You know, we've talked about this with a few different episodes in how we read scripture is that we're like, oh yeah, he must have told him this, but what what was the real problem that they were having to deal with? And that's why we've gone back to that quote from Joseph Smith that talks about what question were they asking that evoked this answer? And so when we do that, we can start to try to get into kind of the mind and the heart about what they needed at that time, because we can start to see this command to go to the Lamanites, but this never really comes to, to fruition. And why? And so it, it's that why question. And I think that's a really big takeaway for uh, for us here with, with uh, what we're talking about here. But I love at the end of verse 30, and your whole labor shall be in Zion with all your soul from henceforth. Yea, you shall ever open your mouth in my cause, not fearing what man can do, for I am with you. And I love that this is the Lord's cause. To be called into this work, and as we've talked about before, to be called, this is not a work that they're like, okay, I'm going to start doing this work and I'm going to be involved in, in the work because it's something I do, like I put my identity to it. This is a forsaking of your identity in doing what God is already doing. God was already busy doing all of this. He just invited you into it. It's kind of a hard lesson for them to learn. I, and I can imagine, you know, studying a little bit of the Second Great Awakening and the time that, that they're out there, all of the preachers and the pastors, as Joseph Smith complained in his uh, in his first vision description before, you know, the, the, the very catalyst that caused him to even be reading in James was that he saw the people joining the churches who should have, who in their religious fervor and in their passion for joining the churches did not display any additional charity or humility or any kind of brotherly kindness. But everybody was trying to use the scriptures to browbeat their brother, saying mm-hmm. that they were speaking the name of God, right? Mm-hmm. And so people were trying to to win the belief argument, and what God did for Joseph is he just brought him into a pure experience. And I see God doing that same thing here. He's bringing them into that experience with him so that then he can keep on instructing them. And as I think we're going to find out here with a, with a little bit later with a discussion, is God's not so much concerned that you understand the whole thing from beginning to the end. He's like, he allows us to kind of think what we want to think because that's what we need to keep acting. It's that we stay engaged in the conversation with God. Because even if we choose not to, because in my life I've had countless experiences where I couldn't have given two flying whatevers that God was there or that God existed or that God was, is like, whatever, I don't care. I wasn't qualifying for God's grace. I wasn't qualifying for God's love. I wasn't qualifying for anything for God to be there with me at all. And for all intents and purposes, God could have been anywhere else, and I wouldn't have even cared. But it's in those moments that I've learned about the, the universality and the, the unconditionalness of God's grace and love, because he has found me when I did not deserve it. And he has allowed me to grace to be able to assume what I assume to be able to grow. Because when I look back on my life and the, and the things that I think I've heard from God and the interpretations I've made from experiences, I look back and I'm like, man, what in the world were you thinking? 
and I don't want to be critical on myself, but I look back <laughs> on a lot of my life, I'm like, you were a, you were a real idiot. But then this moment of grace comes and a love of God to be able to say, yes, I was an idiot. And I know what? I am right now. But God's grace is bigger than my stupidity. God's grace is bigger than my pride. God's grace is bigger than my ego. And he's always been there with me. There has never been a time where he has not always been there with me. I have chosen to reject him and to cut him out to where I don't re- I don't accept it and I, d- I, I don't acknowledge it. But God always finds the cracks and, and it breaks through. I see a lot of that going on in these sections where we're going to try, try to see a lot of how he's pulling these people into that conversation with him. I really love the use of that word cause in my cause in that verse 11. This goes back to a short discussion we had about the cause of Zion, right? Rather than Zion being an effect, it's a cause. And I'd love here, he says, open your mouth in my cause, not fearing what man can do. This goes a little bit back to what we just talked about with journeys and destinations, right? As opposed to a particular outcome. That I see a cause as basically the cause is that journey. And that's what we're supposed to be engaged in. The Lord doesn't make us responsible for a particular outcome. He just wants us to be involved in the cause. We don't need to be worried about the effect. And that's why I love the next little line right after cause. He says, open your mouth in my cause, not fearing what man can do. Don't worry about the effect. Just join me in my work. Man, that's powerful to me. I That's so yeah. neat. Neat, that's a terrible word for it. <laughs> what am I, no, I feel that though. Yeah, I, I feel that. It, 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 it's, it is powerful to be able to realize that we are not having to be responsible for what happens. It's just, it, it's just to be present in the now with God in, in being called into it, into choosing it now. And we don't have to be concerned with how this is going to do it. God takes care of his own. I think there's a lot of depth to that. Uh, that evokes in my mind uh, concepts that, that come up when we talk about the creation. I love that verse in Abraham that talks about God's ordered the things and watched until they obeyed. Do you know this? This very patient, ever-present, persuasive, loving God that coaxes his creation along until it reaches its potential. And it's that cause, right? That very, maybe we could describe it even as slow, but consistent moving towards towards him. And I like DNC, the, the imagery in DC 121, you know, without compulsory means, it shall flow unto you forever and ever. And, and, and I just see kind of all of that being part of this concept and, the, and this image here. But moving into uh, section 31, you know, this actually kind of goes along with the theme because I, I should have, but I didn't look into the history of what happens with Thomas B. Marsh's family. Because in verse 2, it says, The day cometh that they will believe and know the truth and be one with you in my church. And I should have done the research. I, I'm uh, Maybe you know, or, or maybe I'll just have to find out after we do this podcast. But I think here, you know, this kind of goes along the lines of, okay, well, what do we do with this verse if this never actually happened? If Thomas B. Marsh's family didn't actually join the church, and maybe maybe they did, you know, maybe this prophecy came to true, but came to fruition. But what do we do with this verse if that never happened, right? And it kind of goes back to what we've we were talking about here with with the others, that you know the Lord's giving this 
to him and he makes a certain he might be making a certain assumption about a time frame that this is going to happen and it being fulfilled within our limited understanding and expectations and not gaining this eternal perspective and I, and I've always liked that about some when we were teaching seminary some of the one of the manuals the church did one of the suggestions that was made in it was you know when you're looking at scriptures and concepts and questions that you examine them with an eternal perspective and i always thought that was was a really good tool is probably not the right word but perspective exactly you know a a good perspective to use when when dealing with concepts yeah i remember i had a a really great lesson from the from the ces coordinator that we had that i have here in bakersfield who's easily one of my top five favorite people ever. <laughs> he, uh, he was, he gave a lesson about that eternal nature of, uh, of, of, of looking, at, looking at the scriptures as with that eternal view, you know, cause a lot of the time we, we tend to be short-sighted in how we, we interpret a lot of these things. And what I think is fascinating with that, with that eternal view though, is the juxtaposition between being present and living present and having the eternal view. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the times I think for, for me, I had these moments in my life when I really was trying to analyze what value the idea of heaven was for me in this life. As Latter-day Saints, we really don't hold on to that whole heaven-hell dichotomy. You know, we have three heavens and, and an outer darkness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, no, there's no real Dante's <laughs> Inferno for us. And so it's like, what does that do? And then with the plan of salvation, we have this idea that, you know, the celestial kingdom is even so better that, uh, you know, that... People would 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 do anything they could to get there, right? And if that's so, if my reward, even if the worst reward, is so much beyond my comprehension, where I literally can't even comprehend it, what value is it really for me to live a good life? I mean, if I really can't even comprehend the reward, what value is it? And then I started re- reading a bunch of books on the Sermon on the Mount and on the Beatitudes and on, on Christ. And Christ gave almost zero emphasis to an eternal reward in his earthly ministry. Everything that he gave was about the here and now, mm-hmm. about building the kingdom of heaven here and now, of, of living that within yourself, of basically bringing heaven to earth right now, of connecting heaven and earth through our own lives to where whether or not in the flesh or out of the flesh, it wouldn't make a difference. And as I was looking at this idea where Christ says, take no thought for the morrow, but yet at the same time, it's we look with an eternal perspective. And, and I found this beautiful center between those two seeming dichotomies where living in the present, truly living in the present, was looking with the eternal view. Right. That that is what it is to be in the eternities, is to look at that eternal now. That's that singularity, that, that moment right here and now. Because then that truly gave me power to bring heaven and earth together by by contemplating that into being in that moment. Really powerful uh, recognition and experience for me when when that finally clicked. With Thomas B. Marsh, I'm going to Thomas B. Marsh. You know, I, he's always a character that has very much fascinated me, and he's not one that I've actually ended up really getting into researching really heavily. But what I do know is this is that we have heavily strawmanned Thomas B. Marsh in our stories of how we talk about him. Mm-hmm. One of the ways we do this is with the whole skimmings story that he seemingly apostatized because of the skimmings stories. And that's just not true. That's not what happened. Whether or not that story actually happened or not is another thing. But in this regard, Thomas B. Marsh was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. He was there with Orson Hyde in Missouri. And that's when 
1836, 1837, I believe, is about 1837, when a small group of people uh, of Mormons ended up forming the Danites, and they became a marauding band and had gone through and actually pillaged an entire city. And Thomas B. Marsh was like, I, I'm not going to put my name to this. You know, if this is what the Mormons are going to be here, I'm not going to put my name to this. And so him and Orson Hyde had actually written a letter kind of renouncing their I, their affiliation with these with this with the church or at least with these the people they're associating there doing this marauding stuff and eventually that became the grounds for why he was dismissed orson hyde wrote you know signed his name to the same letter he was disfellowshipped from the from the church but he wasn't excommunicated thomas b marsh was later excommunicated uh, a year later but he ended up rejoining the church in, in 1857 when he rejoined the church he he did a major apology and, you know, he, he talked about the beam that was in his own eye and the moat that was in the Brother Joseph's, but really there wasn't even a moat in Brother Joseph's eye. And considering how heavily to task Brigham took Thomas B. Marsh to rejoin the church, I've often wondered how much of, how much of uh, Thomas B. Marsh's re-entry statements about, this, about the whole matter had sure. far more to do with Brigham's requirement for him to be so... Uh, Penitent. He was very penitent anyway, but he's just a very fascinating individual. But what I really like here in verse 31 is in verse 4. You shall declare the things which have been revealed to my servant Joseph Smith Jr. You shall begin to preach from this time forth, yea, to reap in the field which is right, all ready to be burned. Now, you had brought this up when we were talking about this earlier, Ben. You know, this, this phrase is usually white, all ready to harvest. Yeah. In this context, it goes right to the burning. And as we've talked about before, that burning, that turning to ash, we always tend to think that that's the destruction of the wicked. And the destruction of the wicked in the manner of that God's going to come kill them all. And if God comes to come kill them all, then there's nobody left alive to be able to pers- you know, prosecute us and to persecute us. And so in that particular case, then there's going to be peace because we never see ourselves as the wicked people. We always see ourselves as the righteous people and everybody else needs to be burned. And so in this particular way, we see that the burning here was more highly symbolic of transformation. Right. Of uh, of God transforming, destroying the wicked by transforming them, by by bringing them into a new way of being. And so I love that I love the analogy here. Though field white already to be burned, um therefore through the thrusteth in his sickle with all your soul and your sins are forgiven you and you shall be laden with sheaves upon your back for the laborer is worthy of his hire wherefore your family shall live. You know, Thomas B. Marsh is just a, it's just an absolutely fascinating character. Before he joined the church, he was a Methodist. Um, he got to kind of be dis- a bit disaffiliated and dis- disenfranchised with the uh, with the Methodist sect. So he ended up joining the Quietists. And I didn't even know who the Quietists were for the longest time. <laughs> I think I've heard that before, but I don't remember anything about him. What, what did you find out about the Quietists? Well, I've studied the Quietists on 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 other projects, but the Quietists were a group of people that went, you know, they went back several hundred years, but they were labeled as heretics by the Catholic Church because they practiced contemplation over meditation, hmm. and they practiced silent prayer um, as opposed to necessarily having vocal prayer. And so the, the, those two things of just having silent prayer and of contemplation made them heretics. And so Thomas B. Marsh came into this practice of quietism, of having contemplation and of silent prayer before God. That was kind of that kind of really shapes and forms the, the identity of who this guy is. Hmm. And one of his complaints is when uh, when Joseph got to be pretty animated during Zion's camp and trying to get an army together to go down to to reclaim a lot of Missouri. Thomas B. Marsh was one of those few that kind of pushed back a little bit against Joseph's a little bit of his rhetoric, his uh, his spirited rhetoric about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about avenging Missouri and just trying to pull it back a little bit. He thought, you know, maybe we need to kind of have a little bit more attitudes of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. So, you know, he's a very interesting character. I really appreciate Section 31 that way. 
Yeah, I I wish there was more done with his character in in the history of the church. Some of the the videos that are made focus too much on the the criticisms he made rather than the contributions he gave. So I think as a church we could do better history wise and and look at that. So section thirty two talks about it's pretty short about Parley P. Pratt and, and Zebra Peterson. But there, there's a couple things in here that I thought were interesting to point out. You know, again they're going with going with Oliver Cowdery to the Lamanites. And I like what it says here in verse three. It says, and Zeba Peterson also shall go with them. And I myself will go with them and be in their midst. And I am their advocate with the father and nothing shall prevail against them. These next sections, we have these statements toward the end uh, where like uh, section 33 verse 18 says, I say unto you, I come quickly, even so amen. And then uh, same with section 34, I come quickly. And then section 35, it says, I come quickly, <laughs> right? And then in section 36, it says, I will suddenly come to my temple. And there's all these things about I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. I thought that was interesting for those to, to kind of come in. They might be somewhat chronologically after this section where the Lord tells these missionaries that he himself would go with them on their mission and be there with them. So it kind of like brings up this question, okay, wait, is the Lord there or is he not there because he hasn't come yet? You know, when, when we were talking before the podcast, Shiloh brought up this, this idea that these people that are receiving these revelations, the concept they have in their mind, this this narrative that they've built up is, okay, we've got the church that we're restoring and we're repair, we're preparing for the Lord to literally return, come in the cloud, right? It says um, in the next section we're going to look at here, he's going to come in a cloud of glory and return to the earth. This whole very dramatic thing that we have paintings of and everything in the church, right? And so we're literally preparing for this event. So that's must be what the Lord means by when he's coming quickly. And so we have this, this idea that, if not all, the majority of these people who are joining the church have about the second coming of Christ. And they're joining a church that's supposed to be preparing for this. And then the Lord literally tells them, I'm, I come quickly, which I guess we could interpret to mean I'm coming very soon. This is coming up really, really soon. And so everybody's really waiting essentially for this to happen tomorrow or next week. And, and, you know, at any time this, this could be happening. And again, it, it kind of raises the question here when we look at verse three of section 32, if the Lord is coming, that means he hasn't come yet, then how is he there with them? And so for me, it says, well, maybe we need to look at this a little bit differently. Anyway, as we were having the discussion before, you kind of came up with that question. I, I, I'd like to have you formulate it again so that I don't straw man your question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's this really interesting idea that the Lord keeps on saying that he's going to be there, he's going to come, and he's going to come quickly. And and this is a very common sentiment in that particular time. But but what exactly does that mean? And this kind of goes back to our original uh, original question, like with sending the missionaries out. Is he talking about, he, as we'll find out in the very last verse of, of 36, he says, I come quickly to my temple. You know, at this point, I can imagine them thinking, your temple? Because Kurland isn't even in their mind yet. Yeah. Right? It might, well, it, it may have just entered their mind because now they're sitting there with uh, Edward Partridge and this is coming to Edward Partridge. But he's going to come to his temple. What temple? And what does that even mean? So are we saying that, I think it's when March, is it March 27th? 
I think it's March 27th, 1836 is when the Kirtland Temple is dedicated. And so is that the time that the Lord comes in his glory? Like, like, is that the event that the Lord had been prophesying about, that he comes in his glory, that, th- that that was the event, and then everything afterwards is just post the fulfillment of that? And, and I'm totally fine with it, but that doesn't really seem to be lining up with the, the, the rest of the, the rest of the, the scriptures here about what they're trying to say with the Lord coming. So what is, what does he mean? And, and so one of the things that you and I had talked about was, is this one of those things that the Lord is saying, hey, listen, I'm coming quickly, but he's not actually going to come for two, 300 years, maybe 400 years, and and say that it was all figurative of the Lord? And if that's the way it was, why is the Lord telling them what he's going to do, getting them to believe that, that it was going to happen in their day, but the Lord knowing it was going to be years and years or hundreds of yeah, years? Yeah, it seems deceptive. It seems deceptive. But then there's this also other another idea that was it possible in their lifetime? Is that a possibility? Was he was he setting them up to this ability of saying, listen, this is possible in your lifetime. And if that's the interpretation of this, if that's the way of looking at this, then are we to say, well, what part do we play in, in the second coming? Because typically as church members, we, we look at it as though, you know, Jesus doesn't know the time we say, only the Father knows the time, because that's what Jesus says. How is Jesus saying, I come quickly? He doesn't know yet. Is he just anticipating it? So why is Jesus even saying this? And again, does this have to do with Kirtland Temple? And if it does, that's fine, but it's it's highly ambiguous. And so then is he saying, listen, if you do everything I'm commanding you to do, then Zion will be established. So then this even gets into the question, why, why Missouri? Why did everything happen with Missouri? With the Lord, was the, did the Lord not have the foresight? Why did he send everything to Missouri to happen with Missouri? And then why did Missouri fail? And then why did Nauvoo happen? And why did Nauvoo fail? And why did Utah even have to happen when the idea was that Missouri was supposed to happen? When when we look back on it with twenty, you know, kind of like twenty twenty hindsight, we begin to see that oh yeah, it kind of makes sense. We ended up in Utah. And we kind of ended up with where we're at, and 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 it's okay because eventually we'll go back, and that's okay for us. But when you're the person living in this experience and the Lord's saying, hey, go to Missouri, go build Zion. Okay, well, that didn't work. Go do this and go do this. Okay, well, that didn't work. Now the Lord says to go do this and go do this. Well, I, I can see how the saints, their their faith was tested by saying, okay, we keep on thinking we're doing what the Lord's telling us to do. But then we come to find out is the saints weren't always living up to those commandments either. So are we to understand that they could have built Zion? And if they could have built Zion, could we build Zion today? Is every generation capable of building Zion in their own day? And I love in section 101, it gives us a little bit of evidence for this. In in section 101, it says, this is the Lord speaking, And there is even now already in store sufficient, yea, even in abundance, to redeem Zion and establish her waste places, no more to be thrown down, were the churches who call themselves after my name willing to hearken to my voice. Hmm. You know, that's a, it's a pretty powerful statement. And that carries with it some pretty heavy, some pretty heavy weight. Chastisement, maybe. Yeah, a chast- yeah like a chastisement. <laughs> <laughs> and and we have to realize that the Lord was saying this in uh, in in December of eighteen thirty three. So they're in Kirtland, and the Lord is already saying that they already have in store and sufficient to build Zion if if they were to be obedient. So what does this say? What does it say about our place? What does it say about us? What does it say about the Lord delaying His coming? Thing is, I, I don't have the answers for all of it. There's just a lot of clues here that as we look back on this and we realize that the Lord is commanding a lot of things 
to go do a lot of things like the Lamanites, like building Zion, like he's coming, that never actually end up happening the way that is so obviously laid out here and that they acted according that this was how they thought it was going to happen as well. So it, it just, we have to be really careful in how we read these scriptures that sometimes it can create far more ambiguity, ambiguity than it actually creates solutions. Well, I think uh, the way that you laid out is is a, a perfectly consistent way of of seeing this. That you know, because we're we're really talking about two questions here. You know, what again, referencing these these last verses of thirty three, thirty four, thirty five, and thirty six, where the Lord says, "In three out of the four, I come quickly," and then in the fourth, I come suddenly to my temple. So very similar, if not the same meanings. And we can get into if there's some nuance in the temple one, but. But for the time being, you know, we basically have two questions here. And and the first is, what does the Lord actually mean when he says this? And then the second question is, if it if he doesn't mean what the people that received the revelation thought he meant, why does he allow them to think that? Right. And so we ask ourselves this question, you know, let's say I receive some sort of prompting or enlightenment from the spirit. Maybe I'm reading the scriptures and something's open to my mind, or I'm going about my day and I feel a prompting from the spirit to do a certain thing or or it teaches me a certain way of looking or perceiving the world that that opens my mind to something. And because of that, I would say in my experience, the the promptings or the light and knowledge I receive is is typically something very simple and directed. And what happens so often from that very simple directed statement is I then, and this is very natural, and I think the Lord's okay with us doing this, but we have to realize that this is what we're doing. I then build meaning on top of that. I take that little prompting or impression I think might be a good word for it. And I build meaning on top of it. I fit it into the context of understanding that I have right then, what my current problem is, or what my current perception is, or you know what I'm trying to accomplish. And I build meaning on top of it. And then sometimes I take all of that meaning that I have, all these layers that I've piled on top of this impression, this kernel, and I I say, oh, that's the revelation I received. And then I go share that experience, you know, with somebody else. The Lord taught me this. And it was, you know, sometimes I pile those layers on top of that experience. And then later in my life, I might look back on that and say, in another context, oh, you know what? That actually meant something a little more fundamental. It wasn't so, it wasn't so specific to my circumstances. I could actually draw out this more simple principle and expand it. And the Lord was actually, you know, meaning something more particular for me, or he was trying to get me to, or or persuade me into an experience and a journey. And I sort of intuited that there was going to be, he was actually pointing me towards a particular destination, right? And so kind of back to that concept of, journeys and destination causes and effects that I sometimes build on top of these impressions. Oh, this, this is pointing me to a particular destination rather than realizing, no, this was pointing me 
to a particular journey and experience. And I assumed a destination on top of that. So I know that got really abstract and, and odd, but, <laughs> but all that to bring back to the point here. Okay, so the Lord says to them, I come quickly. And they can very easily build on top of that statement. All They can bring to it all of their assumptions about what the second coming is. And they can say, oh, well, that means X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. You know, they can go off in all directions of what this specifically, what the Lord means by this for them and their life. And I don't think that it's necessarily uh, the intention of the Lord to always try to correct us in that. Kind of going back to that Holland thing, you know, sometimes it's good for us to go down and get to that destination before we turn around and go another way to realize that we were focusing too much on the destination rather than the journey. To again, pull back that, pull that back from the abstract into the concrete. Sometimes we can interpret a scripture in a certain way, in a, in a, a specific way to mean something that isn't necessarily what the Lord intends for us to, to understand. And then later, as our understanding grows, we can kind of realize, and I think you said this before when we talked about scripture, you said, you know, a lot of times we hang a lot of weight on a scripture and it can't really support all the weight we put on it. (laughs) And we have to step back and be like, Hey, you know, I put way too much weight on that hook. You know, with this scripture that says, I come quickly, man, we put way too much weight. You know, the the literal second coming of the Lord is going to happen within the next, you know, five years. That's way too much weight to put on that scripture. What is a, a much more personal and meaningful and profound significance to that scripture? Is it the Lord will literally come or is it that something more along the lines of the Lord is going to come into your life? And he's going to be with you, like section 32 says when they go to preach. And I like the, I like the experience as it relates to this of Alma in Alma chapter 36, where he talks about him going through all of the pain and anguish and never until he called upon Christ did he, was he delivered from that. And that was quick, right? We can call that quickly or the other word that's used at, in section 36 is suddenly. And I think that that is a, you know, and I'm not going to make a final statement about how to interpret this scripture because then I would be denying what I'm trying to say here. <laughs> but, but I think that personally, the way that I see these scriptures uh, making much more sense in the broader context is that the people that received them may have thought they meant a specific thing. And the Lord didn't necessarily intend for it to mean that, even if he understood that the people would understand it that way, that he allowed them to think that within their context so that they could have a journey that would then end up allowing them to gain a greater experience and step back from that meaning and gain a greater, more profound understanding of it. I feel like I just said the same thing like four times over, but... No, I, I loved it. And I love that you bring in Alma into it because I think Alma is a great, I think there's a lot of evidence there in the text that Alma has this highly transformative experience, right? When he's with the sons of Mosiah and the angel appears to him and, and he's in that trance for three days. That's a highly transformative experience. 
And then he recounts it twice in uh, in Alma 36, right? He recounts his experience. And then we end up getting uh, kind of atonement theory. It's kind of Methodist atonement theory in Alma 42. What ends up happening from that is his, he says to his sons, do not suppose that I know this of myself, but it has been revealed to me. And then he goes back to that experience. And I've thought about these scriptures a lot in the Book of Mormon because I think it really shows, it goes to illustrate your point that Alma seems to be having this really deep transformative experience. And it was so revolutionary and kind of once in a lifetime kind of a thing. I mean, it, of course, it's a once in a lifetime. It's like once in a millennia of people having these kinds of experiences that are recorded in scripture. But he has this experience that's so nuanced. He keeps going back to it and trying to pull meaning and, and narrative and understanding out of it. He's like uh, trying to make sense out of this experience. And there's, there's some evidence, and we, we talked about it when we were going through those, uh, when we were going through those chapters about how he had had the experience, but then he started to extrapolate past that. And he, and in his extrapolation past that, he still takes that as though that's what we, that was re, what was revealed to him. Mm-hmm. That, that's what God was, had told him. And so it's like he pours his own understanding into it. And this isn't the whole, I know this of myself. Then he goes back to the experience. But then he extrapolates from it. He goes, well, don't don't think that I have extrapolated on myself. Then he goes back to the experience. Right. And so it's just really interesting there's, uh, polarity that we all go through. And I know I've done this so many times and, I, and I've talked about it in my own journals where I've had an experience and I've written about it and I've gone back years later to reread it. And I'm like, uh-uh, that's that. <laughs> right. I know what you were going through at the time. But no, that that's that's it's it's just it's different now. And I, I part of that is that, for instance, I love to use Nephi's conversation with the Holy Ghost or with the Spirit, the quote unquote the Spirit when he kills Laban. And the reasons that's given for killing Laban are consequentialist and utilitarian. And so this is like very ends justifies the means. <laughs> if we want to get really philosophical. A lot of this is how Nazism worked and, and of, of how the Holocaust worked. So are we to say that God is a consequentialist, that God is a utilitarian, that God is this way? And there are other scriptures that support that, but there's also other scriptures that don't. Like, for instance, Jesus goes, leaves the 90 and 9 to go after the one. Well, that's anti-utilitarian. Right. So, so what is it? What is God? Is, is he the utilitarian of Nephi or is he the, is he the anti-utilitarian in Jesus Christ saving the sheep? And one of the things that I've come to at least explain that a little bit, there's there's hours of discussion I, I've you and I both could have on this, but it's that in my life I've realized that about ninety nine percent, okay, well if I'm being really exact maybe like ninety percent ninety one point two I don't know, <laughs> but a major point of my experiences with the spirit have been I truly believe of my own making that that I was that, that the whole point of the Holy Ghost as a witness and a companion is for us to learn how to become our own Urim and Thummim. This whole life is about learning how to become like God. What's the transition? And, and it, it seems weird indeed if that this was not the the the, the ground in the, in the school that we learned how to awaken within ourselves the divinity within ourselves to get those divine answers from within ourselves. So it, it's the God within us. So yeah, the, and then the Holy Ghost is the con- confirmation. He's the confer- he confirms these things, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've looked back a lot of my time, a lot of the time on the quote unquote spiritual experiences that I've had and, and the conversations I've had with the Holy Ghost and I've had with the Spirit and I've written them down. And surprise, surprise, the Holy Ghost sounds a lot like Shiloh Logan because the arguments that I used at that particular day and age, that, that time in my life, I can tell, I can go back to times I was in BYU studying philosophy where the, the, the spiritual experiences I was writing down start sounding a lot like Locke. And some of them start sounding more like Kant. 
and start and they start to reflect like the philosophers I'm, st- I'm studying at the time <laughs> because that's the language that's in my head that's the idea those are the ideas that are turning around and when i go back to it i'm like no that was just kantian that's just kantian language like what are you talking about and then it's like oh i see beneath that and i see what god was it, it was a true spiritual experience of 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 that coming out within myself but the language that came out was my language right and so I, I've, I've had to even in myself learn how to dig below my own language to see what God was really revealing to me. And, and I love that journey. It's happened so many times. It, it's not even nuanced to me anymore. I just, it just, it just happens. And I'm like, it's just a journey. And I, and I find a lot of joy in it. So when I read over these scriptures and I see how God is coming out through the voice of them and he speaks to them according to, to their language and their knowledge. And we're getting a lot of flavor of Joseph in these things. That's not a problem for me. In fact, I revel, I, I love this coming out in the text and, and I love trying to find ways. And maybe I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong in how I'm doing this particular time, but it, it really does add a very, uh, for me, it's a joy to be able to see these people as human beings. Genuine. In their genuine. Yeah, that's a great word for it. Genuine. The genuineness of who these human beings were, and it brings out their intentionality and their humanity in seeking to follow God, that it doesn't make them superhuman. It just makes them who they were. But it also means that we have this amazing God that is willing to do this with them in their journey. And so it really does, like for me anyway, it, it brings, yeah, genuine, I love that word. It brings a, a genuineness to who Joseph war, was and who these men were in this in this process. You know, as you were talking about your experiences with the Holy Ghost and how you sometimes, you know, there there's that, that little thing and then you kind of, you, you kind of take it and run with the ball, so to speak, right? A, a, another way of looking at it, this analogy that came to mind is that often the the Holy Ghost or the Spirit will, will prompt, will have a little spark, of understanding. And depending on how we've sort of built our fire and our kindling and our wood, you know, that will take flame and burn in directions that the spirit didn't necessarily tell it to go. They were of our own making, right? And it maybe lit that. And that's good. That's a good thing. But we have to separate. We don't have to, but (laughs) I think it's useful for us to examine, self-examine this. We have to separate how it is that we built our fire and allowed that to burn in a certain direction, as opposed to what where that initial spark came from and what that initial spark was, right? What was it that the spirit actually, at its basis, most specific level, actually said? And in my experience, as I've really, truly examined those and allowed all of my assumptions and notions and prejudices to fall away, those are very, very simple, very profound, but very simple things. They don't get complex and, you know, go into all the different nuances of everything. They're very simple types of promptings. And I very quickly build all of my my uh, understanding on top of them because that's how I have to then bring it into my life, right? But the actual the actual purity of that prompting or that impression, if I really allow all of that other stuff to fall away, is a is something very very simple. I think it, it for me it's been a very useful exercise, like in terms of contemplation, to to go through that to kind of examine spiritual experiences and kind of just rest with them and allow sort of that whatever I've built up around it to kind of fall away and to get to that that kernel, that 
pure little tiny prompting of the spirit that is difficult to describe, but I think the word love actually does a pretty good job. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So in moving forward, we had allotted to spend about 10 minutes on each section. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and we, Best laid plans uh, of we, mice and men. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, like the discussion we're having. So in, in section 34, we moved to Orson Pratt and I, I know we wanted to spend some, some extra time in, in section 35, but in section 34, I, I love verse two when it says, well, I guess in verse one, you have to have verse one. My son Orson, hearken in here, behold what I, the Lord God, shall say unto you, even Jesus Christ, your Redeemer. The light and life of the world, a light which shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. I love the I, I, I love this verse because for me, what this has always stood for is this idea that light is the, the basis of reality. You know, we learn later on in the DNC that, that all matter is light, light and intelligence, right? Light and truth. And that light is really the basis of all things, but the, it, it shineth in the darkness, but the darkness doesn't comprehend the light. And this for me is very true self, false self, that the reality of our being, you know, we have at the center of a lot of our theology, this idea of becoming. And the more I've studied out the theology of becoming, the more I, I just, I, I don't know if it yields as much good fruit as we actually think it yields, because there is... There's no end to what we ever become. It's like a meta- metaphysical becoming to where it's always quality based. It's like you're always qual- trying to qualify yourself for the next step. Whereas I like the, the idea, and I think it's far more consistent with the message of Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, is that we look at it as an awakening. We're awakening to who and what we all already are. Now, in one way, from, from a perception standpoint, it, it looks as though we're becoming brighter and brighter and brighter, mm-hmm. but is that the reality that we're be- that we are metaphysically becoming brighter and brighter and brighter, or is it we are already beings of light, and in our awareness of seeing God differently and our seeing ourselves differently and seeing each other differently, we are simply starting to see each other becoming aware of what we always already were. And I love this verse because this verse speaks to that second interpretation: the light always shines in the darkness, but the darkness doesn't comprehend it. In our false self, in darkness, we don't comprehend the light that we always already are. And that's what repentance is. And that's what I've learned to find repentance for myself, is that we are always already worthy. We are always already beings of light. And repentance and the gospel of Jesus Christ is that which brings us into an awareness of what we are. And we always have been. So the becoming is more of a an awareness. It, it's becoming aware of something that already exists. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehends it not. We are the light is the basis of, of reality, and we're simply letting the scales fall from our eyes to seeing what has always already been there. I, I like the way that you're explaining, yeah, you know, in terms of like the becoming. I think I think there's a lot of metaphors that use for it. You know, the the becoming concept is is something that uh, has been popular in church culture for describing it for a while. And you're right. I think there's some inadequacies to it. I think any of our ways to describe it are going to be somewhat inadequate. And so, you know, the way that you're describing it, I think is is a really good uh, way to probably uh, somewhat better from certain perspectives, right? And a lot of this has to do with perspective. We talk about perspective of prophets whenever we uh, get into to scriptural context as well. But um, I do, I I do like that better. I think it fits better, at least with my experience of the of the process um, as it goes through. So you know, you, 
you're wanting to move on to section 34, and I, I just can't let go of a, of a scripture in, uh, of a verse in section 33. So I'm going to talk about it anyway, and that's kind of sliding backwards. But <laughs> here we have section 33, verse 4. Uh, it says, And my vineyard has become corrupted every whit, and there is none which doeth good, save it be a few. And they err in many instances because of priestcrafts all having corrupt minds. This cross references well with a verse over in Second Nephi chapter twenty-eight, verse fourteen. And they were stiff necks and high heads, yea, and because of pride and wickedness and abominations and whoredoms, they have all gone astray, save it be a few who are the humble, humble followers of Christ. Nevertheless, they are led that in many instances they do err because they are taught by the precepts of men. And you know, I, I think this brings up the sometimes repeated or oft-repeated idea that. Okay, the the prophet is called of God, but he's not infallible. And um, we unfortunately put way too much weight on his shoulders by pretending that he is. And I think it's just not fair. It's not fair to ourselves. It's not fair to the Lord. It's not fair to him to treat the prophet as if he's infallible. The scriptures don't support that type of treatment. And in, in any case, uh, what the scriptures call us to do, what Christ calls us to do is to to get revelation for ourselves. And the prophet has a specific responsibility, and it's not to give us all personal revelation for everything that we're supposed to do in our lives. So if he if he makes a mistake, it's also our responsibility to get the direction of the spirit in our lives so that we can discern that and we can humbly move forward with the direction of the Lord. I like it. All right, so we've gone from section 33 to 34 and back to 33 again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I forgot that I forgot when we were talking there was that piece there in 33 that uh, and that really is a great point about priestcrafts um, about what the Lord says there. I, I I think if I if I introduce another thought on that it would carry us into s- several more okay, minutes so there. Okay, so 35. <laughs> 35. <laughs> So in section 35, we have this going to Sidney Rigdon. So now we have Sidney Rigdon and Edward Partridge who have come up from Kirtland. And now now we are entering into the Kirtland phase. We're going to be hearing about the Ohio coming into uh, in, into sections 37 next week and in, in how we're going to be uh, talking about that transition and how they're going to leave New York. And there's going to be some people who stay behind. They're like, whoa. Why would we go to Ohio? We have homes in New York. Ohio's frontier, you know. There's nothing there right now, you know. Right? Yeah. It's and so it's uh, it's a different kind of world, different kind of place. So this section is coming to Sidney Rigdon, and Sidney Rigdon was he's a very well trained theologian. Um, he's the leader of the congregation in Kirtland. It's his congregation that joins the church, and there are ju- there's just there are so many things in this section. I don't know exactly know where to start, but Ben, you said you had a few things here that really stood out to you. So why don't you uh, lead us off and and tell us what stood out to you first and foremost here? Yeah. So several parts in these sections evoke a lot of New Testament language, like we talked about when we were introducing. Here we have. Signy Rigdon compared to John the Baptist and Elijah here. So we have verse four, thou art blessed for thou shalt do great things. Behold, thou wast sent forth even as John to prepare the way before me and before Elijah, which should come and thou knewest it not. Thou didst baptize by water unto repentance, but they received not the Holy Ghost. But now I give unto thee a commandment that thou shalt baptize by water and they shall receive the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands, even as the apostles of old. 
you know, I'm not going to get a ton into the history here, but you know, Sidney Rigdon did lead this congregation in the in was it in Kirtland? It was in Ohio, but I don't remember. Yeah, it was in Kirtland. Yeah. Kirtland. Then these were the Campbellites, I think. Anyway, he it was leading this congregation, and they were basically like a lot of other congregations, saying, "Oh, you know, we're waiting, we're praying, we're trying to find the you know." The church that would would be restored, quote unquote restored, or or like the New Testament church. And here along come the missionaries and preaching it, and they they get him whole. And so the Lord here is comparing him to someone who went before and prepared the way. In the New Testament, John the Baptist goes and preaches in the wilderness. Now Ohio's kind of wilderness at this point, right? It's frontier. It's out there. And then he's preaching to the people. He says, "Well, at some point Christ is going to come. It will be your job to leave me and go follow him." instead. So I must diminish and he will increase. I must decrease, he will increase. And so uh, again, Sidney Rigdon's getting compared to John here in terms of he's prepared all these people and then the restored church is going to come in and they're going to follow that. They're going to go that way. But I, I like this little phrase here, and thou knewest it not. You know, Sidney Rigdon was just doing what he felt was the right thing, the best thing. And he didn't necessarily wasn't fully conscious and aware of the fact that the Lord was guiding him in doing it. And I, I think that's really interesting. Uh, it says, thou didst baptize by water unto repentance, but they received not the Holy Ghost. He didn't, he didn't have this uh, stated official authority of the priesthood as it becomes to be known in the church to baptize people. He was just doing it. And it turns out the Lord said, that's okay. You can do that. That was a good thing that you did that. That prepared the people. And so there's no condemnation of him acting, quote unquote, without authority, right? In this case. And I just think that's really interesting um, and and deserves a little bit of pause for us to consider in terms of our modern Latter-day Saint cultural treatment of baptism in terms of like priesthood authority. Yeah. What verse was that? Uh, so that's verse four and five of section 35 and six, actually. So he says, you prepared the people, you introduced them to this ordinance of baptism, but now when they're going to get baptized, it's going to be a more complete experience. Now they're going to yep. be prepared and, and receive the Holy Ghost. Yeah. I, I've always loved the the symbolism in a lot of ways, but but also particularly with the Holy Ghost, that, that it's a laying on of hands, you know, that there's touch. Right, that this ordinance involves human contact and touch, and some people aren't all touchy feely, like literally touchy feely. But like, touch is actually one of my. I hate the whole love languages thing, but <laughs> <laughs> touch is like it, it. It it means something to me, you know. Like I I I will often when I'm around people and and trying to express affection or approval or or camaraderie or whatever I'll I'll pat them on the shoulder or I'll hug them or something like that like touch is a thing for me so like the the whole part of the ordinance where there's the laying on of hands and you're like touching someone in order to bring them into the experience of the holy ghost that's always been significant for me I I love the symbolism of that and it it it, it kind of helps me with that so that's awesome I, I, in verse seven, I, when you were reading the, for those verses, I was I was looking at verse seven here because I had had some thoughts and I was like, can, can I resolve this before I talk about it? And I don't know. <laughs> so in verse seven, and it shall come to pass that there shall be a great work in the land, even among the Gentiles, for their folly and their abominations shall be made manifest in the eyes of all people. 
did this happen? <laughs> yeah, I'm not exactly. I, I don't necessarily know exactly what that means. I mean, there's a lot about. I mean, this could be talking in a very general sense. Are we, is he talking about like the whole United States at this point? Is he talking about the whole world, or is he talking about like a specific city or a specific place? It's hard to know exactly where to apply, what level to apply this to. It's possible that there's like a a very specific localized historical context for this where like some shady stuff was going on. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. And I'd looked into some research to try to figure it out and I haven't been able to fig- figure this out. You know, who are the Gentiles? Is there, Are we talking about this broadly? Is this just everyone who is not a member of the church yet? What folly? What folly are they having in, in this whole regard? What abominations are being had? And how are they made known into the eyes of people? So how did this happen? And if and if if it did happen, how? I just don't know. This is one of those other verses where the Lord is talking about things, and I'm just, I, you never really see how it's being made made manifest. For I am God, and mine arm is not shortened, and I will show miracles, signs, and wonders unto all those who believe on my name. And I love verse nine because of its universality for all all people. And whosoever shall ask it in my name in faith, they shall cast out devils, they shall heal the sick, they shall cause the blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear, and the dumb to speak, and the lame to walk. Mm -hmm. That's powerful stuff. Whosoever, well, whoso really, shall ask it in my name in faith. And the time speedily cometh that great things are to be shown forth unto the children of men, but without faith shall not anything be shown forth except desolations upon Babylon, the same which has been has made all other nations drink of the wine and the wrath of her fornication. So this is interesting is that you have this juxtaposition of Babylon's wrath, and then you have God's wrath. Mm-hmm. And really, in the end, a lot of the time we equate God's wrath with just this vengeful, punishing destruction. And if that's the case, what's really the difference between Babylon's wrath and God's wrath? If it's both destruction, you're like... <laughs> <laughs> what difference does it make? <laughs> perception. <laughs> and, and I, th- yeah, perception. And I think a lot of the thing here is, is that when we talk about God's wrath, as we, we've done quite a bit, it's a completely different thing. It's not that whole death, destruction, and chaos and oblivion that we, we tend to think it, it's done in. That, and Babylon is one of those things that features very heavily in the, uh, especially in the Old Testament, because the Old Testament's narrative was written largely in in the Jewish exile into Babylon. And so Babylon, a lot of the scriptures that we have were written in the context, you know, they assembled a lot of the stories to fight the Babylonian narratives. And so that a lot of the Old Testament was assembled and rewritten mm-hmm. during that time. And so everything was anti-Babylon. So that's why Babylon features so heavily in so many of our scriptures, right. because the Old Testament was written during that exile. And so it's just fascinating here to see the desolations upon Babylon to show forth, except the desolations upon Babylon, the same which has made all other nations drink of the wine and the wrath of her fornication. And there are none that doth good except those who are ready to receive the fullness of my gospel, which I have sent forth upon this generation. I said unto this generation. Wherefore I call upon the weak things of the world, those who are unlearned and despised, to thrash the nations by the power of my spirit. And their arm shall be my arm. And I will be their shield, their buckler, and I will gird up their loins, and they shall fight manfully for me. And their enemies shall be under their feet, and I will let fall fall the sword in their behalf, and by fire of my indignation will I preserve them. And the poor and the meek shall have the gospel preached unto them, and they shall be looking forth for the time of my coming, for it is nigh at hand. 
and they shall learn the parable of the fig tree, even now already summer is nigh. So it's just, it's, it, this whole thing is very interesting because we end up having this, the Lord calls upon the weak and the, and the unlearned. We have Joseph as weak and unlearned who are bringing about great things, but he also becomes great in wisdom and knowledge with revelation from God, right? To thrash the nations by the power of my spirit, what, what does that even look like? What are we talking about here by thrashing the nations by the power of my spirit? I, for me, I go back to Alma. I go back to our Alma story about how when we live Christ's, when we truly live the Sermon on the Mount, it's actually very destructive to the kingdoms of the earth because it, 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 it topples the need for the kingdoms of the earth. When you see Alma holding the political reign in his in one hand and the religious reigns in the other, he abdicates the political to go out to be a missionary, seeing that the missionary workers was actually going to save civilization and not the political solutions. When I read that little bit, to, to thrash the nations by the power of my spirit, I look that the spirit which goes forth with non-compulsory means, and this is why even the early Christians who practiced nonviolence were highly, highly influence, influential in in toppling the Roman regime because their nonviolence Rome didn't know <laughs> Rome, the most violent of them all, didn't know how to deal with nonviolence. Right. right. <laughs> it's 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 this, it's this fascinating juxtaposition. It knew how to deal with violence, you know, it just built a bigger army and right. beat them. Okay, so your your verse in here, that word uh thrash, is it spelled in your scriptures T H R A S H? Is that correct? Yes. Okay. You have a typo. <laughs> Guess what? First, the 2011 version of the scriptures corrects this typo in the Doctrine and Covenants. That word is incorrect. It is not thrash. Oh, interesting. It is thresh. T-H-R-E-S-H. I have the newer <laughs> version, which is corrected. And this actually changed the meaning of this scripture somewhat. Now, you can still pull significant meaning out of thrash, but it definitely changes it from violent imagery, which can be taken symbolically, to a different type of imagery, which is consistent with the harvesting imagery, which um, is obviously symbolic, right? So <laughs> to thresh is actually what you do is you take you've you've harvested the grain you've got it on the floor you take a shovel and you throw it up in the air and the straw and the chaff blow away and the heavy kernels fall back to the ground and that's how you get rid of the chaff and the the impurities in the grain right and so we we say you know, we we still use the word threshold because that's the part of the door that holds, you know, if you were, you would take all the straw and you'd put it in the house and that, that part of the door is the threshold. That's what holds all of the thresh from going outside. So anyway, if you look like on your electronic version of the scriptures or whatever at verse 13, it's thresh, not thrash. So I, I just thought that was really interesting. It was a, uh, it was just a typo that had been perpetuated. Um, I believe this was written by the hand of Oliver Cowdery, and it was just hard to tell his A's from his E's sometimes. So <laughs> fascinating. Anyway, I love it. <laughs> and I do. I have a 2009 version. Yeah, there you go. So yeah, mine says Thresh, and if you look up on your like your DNC on your phone, it, it's it's Thresh. These verses eight through sixteen, I just 
I love them. There's so much here, and and you were talking about it, and uh, there's there's a lot there. I like how the word show is used so much in here. You know, verse eight says, "I will show miracles." Verse ten says, "Great things are to be shown," and so it's constantly about showing. And I think that's an interesting sort of juxtaposition against the word do. And the reason I think it's interesting is because the Lord is doing all of these things all the time. But what we see or what we choose to see depends greatly on our perception and what we're prepared to see, right? And here in verse 8, it talks about, mine arm is not shortened. I will show miracles, signs, and wonders unto all those who believe on my name. All of this is happening. It's all present. It's just a matter of what reality we're choosing to live in. And if we're choosing to live in the reality of an experience with God, then he's able to show these things to us. It's not that they don't happen unless we have the faith. It's that we don't see them unless we have the faith. And whoso shall ask in my name in faith, they shall cast out devils, they shall heal the sick, they shall cause the blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear, and the dumb to speak, and the lame to walk. In the church, we have this very strong tradition and culture of these types of things being done by the by the power of the priesthood, or by the authority of the priesthood, I should say, um, or both. And we can get into nuanced differences between what we mean by those two things, power or authority. But he doesn't talk about that here, right? It's it's not to say that our our tradition or culture of doing these things only within the context of priesthood authority is wrong. It's just to say that the Lord doesn't necessarily limit it to that. Even if in our own experience it becomes useful for us to do it that way. And I know we talked about, you know, you you touched on this a little bit when you talked about priesthood as a totem. And how it's this way that the Lord has given us to experience a particular way or a mode of being in, in, into coming into, to understanding who he is. And so I think there's a lot of power and significance to that. And, and the way that the, the church has developed that is good and useful. But I, I, I think we need to be careful not to use it in an exclusionary way. Rather to see that the Lord is going to do his work in, in any way. And if, it, you know, there's a New Testament story of the apostles coming to Christ and they say, hey, we saw this guy casting out devils and doing all these things in your name. And, and we told him, don't do that. You know, you don't have to do that. And Jesus said, he's, he's not against us. He's doing good. That's fine. Right. I think that we can be a little more open-minded about our our Christian brothers and sisters that are trying to do good. And when they perform miracles in faith, I don't think um, it's fair for us to say, well, that wasn't really something because they didn't, don't have the authority of the priesthood. That's just an unfair way of limiting the power of God. And that's not, I don't think that's consistent with uh, the way the Lord works. Yeah, I, I very much agree. There have been a lot of experiences I've had with a lot of fellow Christians who I've, I've seen some miraculous things and I've seen, I've seen the Lord work some miraculous things in people's lives. And, you know, for a church that we claim to have the priesthood authority, you know, we could quote Elder McConkie from the doctrines of the priesthood, his talk, the doctrines of the priesthood. We can go back to president Nelson himself in 2016 with his talk to priesthood on uh, the price we pay for priesthood power. Mm-hmm. We, we could use a lot of talks to be able to show that the general authorities have very much been on this, this, 
level of saying, we don't know what it is we have. Yeah. We have this authority, but the thing is, is of, of all the elders quorum meetings I've ever been in and all the priesthood meetings I've ever been in, all the things that talk about what priesthood is, you know, even President McConkie, who <laughs> of all people, President Elder McConkie, for him to say that very little has ever been revealed about it and that Christ is going to talk about himself personally, for him to say that in conference, for him to say that in conference right. is is huge. <laughs> And, and so I think we need to have a, a lot more, not, not just a little bit, a lot more humility and what we think we know we know to be able to step back to realize that there is a lot of, that God is working a great work in his church and his church is doing a great work. And so are all of God's children. God is working in everyone's lives. And, and I know this is not indicative of everyone and I don't want to throw a, a really big blanket over it all, but there has been a lot of times in I've I've come into conflict and not conflict is not the right word. I've come into contact is the word I was looking for with the culture and the church that we we tend to think we are it. I think that actually is is a little bit of hubris in in what we in what it it, it is we think we have. And so there's just amount of humility there. It's not denying it. It's not denying what the truth of the matter, but it's also saying, I think we need to take a big healthy dose of humility sure. in, in evaluating what it is that we think we know we know on that subject. Sure. You know, continuing with these verses here, again, 10, we said, great things are to be shown forth in the children of men, but without faith shall not anything be shown forth except desolations upon Babylon. Okay. So if we're not seeking this experience by faith to see the miracles of the Lord, what is it that we're seeing? We're just seeing desolations upon Babylon. And so again, this is all a matter of our perception, what we're choosing to experience in the world. We can view something as this desolation upon Babylon, right? These these calamities in the earth, or we can choose to see all of the great miracles and things that the Lord is doing. And it's it's a matter of our perception. The same which has been made on made all nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. For there are none that doeth good except those who are ready to receive the fullness of my gospel. Wow, that just like screamed, if not in an ironic way, right? That just screamed poor in spirit to me, <laughs> right? Beginning of the Beatitudes here. Ready to receive the fullness of my gospel. Wherefore I call upon the weak things of the world. Again, this this is still feels very Beatitude-ish to me. Those who are unlearned and despised, those who are cast out, they come up on the mountain, they follow them up on the mountain. And their arm shall be my arm. I'm reading all the same scriptures you did just because I, I loved all the same ones. And <laughs> <laughs> Their arm shall be my arm, and I will be their shield and their buckler. Okay, so we've got like armor of God imagery going on here, which I love how he brings this in because it... Uh, pulls something out for me of this verse that I don't think I would have seen otherwise. And I will gird up their loins and they shall fight manfully for me and their enemies shall be under their feet. And I will let fall the sword in their behalf. And by the fire of mine indignation, will I preserve them? Well, okay. So he's evoking all of these like armor of God stuff. And then he says, their enemies shall be under their feet. What is the feet in the armor of God? The feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. This isn't a violent trampling of enemies. This is how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of those who publish peace, who saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. Like enemies being under your feet is not a violent triumph. It's the prevailing of persuasion, gentleness, love, 
and peace. I just, I'm glad that those, those imageries of that armor came up because it really enlightens what he means by under their feet. So I just thought, you know, feet shod with the, the gospel of peace. And I will let fall the sword in their behalf. Well, what's the sword? It's the sword of the spirit. This could be taken a different way. I will let fall the sword. It could be, you know, the sword is falling away. Like we, maybe it is a literal violent sword that is going away. It's kind of like swords of plowshares type of thing, right? So I'm not sure exactly which to go with. Maybe it's both. Maybe you could pull both out of there. <laughs> and by the fire of my indignation will I preserve them. And the poor and the meek shall have the gospel preached unto them, and they shall be looking forth for the time of my coming, for it is nigh at hand. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The meek shall inherit the earth. So lots of beatitude stuff in here. Um, I think it, these are really beautiful scriptures, like um, pulls in a lot of great themes from New Testament and stuff, but really actually kind of forms, you know, there's some Old Testament stuff here too, but it kind of forms this unique way of putting it all together in a, in a very Bible slash restored gospel, Joseph Smith type of way. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I, I really love that analogy of the feet shot in the preparation of, of the gospel of peace, because that is the juxtaposition here is supposed to be, be between the war and the peace. It's using the imagery of war to show that it's really this peace thing that we're talking about. And this is a very common way of talking about it in the scriptures, to juxtapose the opposites. That's why in the Beatitudes, you have the opposites. You have the poor in the spirit who inherit a kingdom. You have the, the people who mourn, who are comforted. Right. You have those who are meek who inherit the earth. So the opposites are always in contrast with each other. And that's a, a very popular way of doing that. So yeah, I, I love the way that uh, you, you did that with uh, verse 14. Did you have anything else with 35 that you wanted to address? Um, let me see here. I mean, there is some more stuff here, at least continuing on with the concept of the Beatitudes. Um, I see a little bit more here in verse 21, uh, for they shall hear my voice and shall see me and shall not be asleep and shall abide the day of my coming for they shall be purified even as I am pure. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God right? That's that's that verse right there. And and this goes along with the concepts we were talking about before with showing miracles is that when we're pure in heart, we see God. We see him everywhere. We see him in nature. We see him in the faces of every person we meet because we're pure in heart. And that, one of the most significant uh, insights to that scripture that I've had is that the period of our of our heart allows us to see God everywhere. Yeah. You know, I think in a lot of ways that puts into context the last verse of 35, fear not little flock, the kingdom is yours until I come, behold, I come quickly. You know, this 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 whole thing about you know, we've talked about since the beginning of this episode is how God is multi-layered meanings in a lot of what he says. Those that are pure in heart will see him. And he comes quickly. This whole endeavor is for is for the purity of, of the people. And as we turn into section 36, I love the last two verses there. This is the section that's given to Edward Partridge, who had traveled with, with Sidney Rigdon. And in verse uh, 7 and 8, And this commandment shall be given unto the elders of my church, that every man which will embrace it with a singleness of heart may be ordained and sent forth, even as I have spoken. I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Wherefore, gird up your loins, and I will suddenly come to my temple, even so, amen. And I think that's a great place to end because it kind of goes back to the beginning with what we talked about there with, with Christ. 
I love these verses in looking at Joseph Smith because they really have no idea what their future is in store. You know, whatever persecutions they've received already are nothing compared to what's going to happen. And so it's a, it's just this fledgling church. They have, they've already been said, they've already been told by the Lord that there are going to be persecutions, but they have no idea what these are. We're going to find out really fast and they're going to find out really fast within the next several years and things just kind of get bad, bad to worse. And yet you see the Lord there guiding them in the exact same way. And you see them interpreting what the Lord's saying in, in various different ways. We're going to see that really heavy once we get to, to Zion's camp. That's one of my favorite stories, and there's a lot to be t- to talk about there with how the Lord is revealing certain things versus how they're being interpreted versus how they're being carried out mm-hmm. and the consequences of men and how they're interpreting it and carrying them out. And so, yeah, we're going to see a lot of that. So it's it's fascinating, but I love this. I will suddenly come to my temple. Don't even have an idea what this is yet. <laughs> and the Lord's already preparing them for it. I love it. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of ways, I think, to view that verse. You know, the... <sighs> The way that we, like, if you read the manual, right, the the manual is probably going to say like, oh, yeah, and then this is fulfilled in uh, April 3rd, 1836, when the Lord comes to the temple and you read about it in DNC section 110. And, and that's fine. That That is a perfectly um, reasonable way to interpret this verse and as a fulfillment of that prophecy. But I, I, I just look at it also can be applied at a personal level in perhaps a, a more profound personal way is that if... You know, I, I think Paul says it. He says we're you know, we're the temp, we're the temple of God, right? The Spirit of the Lord dwells in us, so our bodies are temples. And if we say that Christ suddenly come to His temple, He could also be talking about us. You know, Him coming to us and our having an experience with Him, being with Him, sitting with Him, as you call it sometimes. A couple other verses, uh, things in section thirty-six. I really like this phrase. I'm not sure where this comes from. I'd have to look up, see what the reference is, if this is a phrase out of uh, the New Testament. But uh, it says, the, the Holy Ghost, even the Comforter, which shall teach you the peaceable things of the kingdom. I like that because it's invoking this idea that, you know what, not everything can really be written in scripture and taught to you about the kingdom of God. All we can do is sort of lead you to it and describe it somewhat. But you have to get the spirit to really teach you all the nitty gritty, so to speak, of how this is going to fit in and work your life and and give you the right experience. The Holy Ghost will teach you the peaceable things of the kingdom. Verse 6, crying repentance, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation and come forth out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted with the flesh. This is a this is an interesting statement. I think it uh, helps support the interpretation we've been running with, <laughs> with in terms of f- how the Lord uses fire, right? Because if if fire comes and burns you, you can't come out of it. You're dead. It's burned you up. You're you're gone. So if he's saying come forth out of the fire, that means you survived the fire, right? Well, the true you, your true self, what the Lord is really calling forth out of that fire is the purified you. So I think this lends itself to to contextualizing the the burning and the fire that's talked about in in these other sections. He is calling us forth out of that fire, that purifying fire. Come forth out of it. Bring your true self out of that. Yeah, I love that. So that's it. <laughs> and that's that. 
Well, we've made it through sections 30 through 36. I knew it was going to take us a little bit longer than we normally uh, we normally run, but uh, there's just a lot of material here to yeah. cover. But as we get into sections 37 and 38, we're going to start to see how they're moving now from, from Fayette and New York, and they're going to start going down into Kirtland. And we're going to start to have that transition. Up to this point, they have largely been there in uh, in New York, and so they're going to start uh, heading down to Kirtland. So right about section 41 is where that that finally transitions, and we'll uh, we'll get there, but uh, that's awesome. Well, Ben, do you have any other last thoughts before we, uh, we close out? Nope. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Until next week, again, thank you for, to Kyle and Catherine for your editing prowess and for everything that you do to keep us going. We couldn't do this without you. You're awesome. Until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you guys for listening.